that's really what pushed me into studying and and going to school and um uh, I went I, I took a couple of classes on my own I read some books I went up to Montgomery Maryland and uh, attended a, a class at Warren Isman who was a premier a hazmat guy in the in the country actually in the world I mean he he was consulting all over the world and he had written a really good book so I um I, I went to his classes and uh, and while I was sitting up there uh, you know trying to think about what how we were gonna put this thing together um, we got some really good ideas from the way they were doing it and then you know as we went regional I sat up there with uh, Larry Logan from Roanoke County and uh, Danny Hall and um, we we decided that you know we were going to try to do something to put a team together a regional team Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson, and joining me today as a co-host and also a contributor and uh, a featured guest on the introductory episode uh, from episode number one is Henry Rosenbaum. Welcome back, Henry. Yeah, thank you, Robbie. I'm glad to be here. And uh, the reason I asked uh, Henry to be here with me is one, is uh, I need the backup and to support, and two, uh, Henry's uh, official guest here with us today is actually the inspiration for this whole podcast. And if anybody who listened to the first episode kind of heard a little bit of that story, and uh, and when this gentleman was uh, out and about and visited Station 21 in Henrico and wound up basically holding court with some of the firefighters that were there because of his time in Henrico and uh, as a founding member of the Henrico Hazardous Incident Team. And uh, for those of you listening, please welcome uh, R.C. Tiny Dawson from Henrico. Tiny, glad to see you. Yep. Thank you for uh, asking me to be here. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy this and... Uh... We'll have a good time. Absolutely. It's a bit of a stroll down memory lane. So uh, let's talk about you first uh, for folks who either are new to Henrico or new to the fire service or not even around Richmond. Uh, talk talk a little bit about your career. You were mentioned a little bit ago you were started out as a cadet. Is that right? I did. I was uh, a KVG one time with the forestry department, and uh, then I became a cadet with Henrico. And... Um, I, that that was a the, really the beginning of my career, you know. Even though it was not paid and it wasn't a volunteer, it was a cadet, and um, I got a chance to learn so much about the fire department through um, working with the paid firefighters at Number Three. Um, I could do just about everything on a fire truck except drive it. I couldn't drive it, but I, I learned to pump it. I learned all the parts of the ladders and all the equipment on the fire truck. So it was a, a very unique experience, a good opportunity for me to to uh, get involved in the fire department. And that's really what I wanted to be. I always wanted to be a firefighter. How, and uh, How old I, were you when that was uh, going I, well, on? I started when I was 15 as a cadet, okay. and then I moved on to um, um, a more senior cadet at 16 or 17. And then when I turned 18, you could actually um, ride the fire truck and you could go into, you can go on burning, I couldn't go in a burning building, but I could go on automobile fires and brush fires. So, uh, and I did that until I was uh, old enough to be a dispatcher with Henrico Police. And I went to work for them um, for a couple of years. And then I, I was, when I turned 21, which was in January uh, of the of a 70, 
um, I uh, was hired with Henrico County. I actually was uh, picked up at, at the um, Henrico building down in May, on Main Street and taken to Chief Gilman's office and um, introduced to him. And Captain Jones, Fred Jones, took me over to number six, and that was my first assignment. So your your recruit school was meeting the fire chief, if you will. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. My they we didn't have real big recruit schools back then. I actually went to recruit school when it was a um, you went on twenty four hours. You just went when you were on duty. Wow. Okay. So you went from the from the station, went into school for a day, for and a day then back for to the, the day, house? and then back to the house. Wow. Okay. And were there other uh, firefighters along with you? So it was like that oh, ship was the recruit school? No, it was uh, firefighters from all the stations around the county. Gotcha. So, so there were different firefighters there. So they just waited till they had a pool of enough new people. Guys to, yeah, to enough people to do a school. And they did it at old number six over on Cambry, the old maintenance building. Mm -hmm. It was done there. And uh, you went back to the fire station and you, and you finished your tour of duty. How long, how long did that go on for? I'm not real sure how long the school was. I think it was about 11 weeks, um, but they're on duty weeks, so you, you have to take care of the shifts and, right. you know, count that time. But I think I think you went to school for about 11 weeks. Oh, right. And, and the schedule then was not the same as it is today, right? The no, no. We weren't, uh, we weren't on the what we call the Norfolk plan, the Monday, the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Wednesday. We we were working um, a ninety six and seventy two I think, I think that's the way it works out. But it it you went you went, like every other day, mm -hmm. until you got a Kelly day, yeah. And then yeah. once you got the Kelly day, you you know you could you could sometimes put two of those together, um, and that gave you some some extra time off. Right. So how long did you spend as a as a firefighter at that house? At. Um, Six. Your first, your first. Oh, uh, three months. Yeah. I was there three months, and then uh, a firefighter at number three passed away. And um, they, uh, since I had known the district so well, they they moved me over to number three. And I was walking out of the door, uh, April the April the first, I think. I walked out of number six, and Mike Otto walked in, and uh, and I went to three. And that's that's that was really the. And I stayed there a little over a year. So that was 1970, you say? Yeah, it should have been 1970. How many stations were in Henrico in 1970? Oh, wow. Let's see. Um, not anywhere near what it is today. <laughs> uh, there was uh, three, six, three, four, six, seven, eight, five, and 11, and nine. So let, oh, eight. Eight there, and... Uh, so and, I, and I think 11 was the furthest one out. Yeah. 12 had, were not, was not built until they had their fire in Weston Manor. Right. Yeah, wow. So 10 or so fire stations back then. Yeah, there. roughly. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, compared to the uh, 21 that we have now. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. over double. Mm. So where, where did you go from there? What uh, what what, um, what was your career path like from uh, 6 to 3 and – well, I, okay. I, when I went to one, I, I, I went there on the task force unit. That was like kind of like Richmond's flying squad. Okay. Um, and we ran calls all over the county. And uh, so I went to number seven. They were We were staying at seven. Part of the task force stayed at seven. Part of it stayed at ten. And uh, it was an, an engine and a and the ladder, ladder. I think it was a snorkel at the time, was in the, that made up the task force. And after about a year's 
standing by those two at seven and ten, we went to number one, and and we ran calls until uh, somebody realized that we were running past fire stations to go to a fire, you know, and we had our own district, so we were leaving our district, running past number five to go to a call, say in ten's district, and then then driving back with with engine five still sitting in quarters, yeah, five way. sitting in quarters, yeah. yeah. So so we. Um, that that quickly went back to where we just ran our district. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not a bad job though. Hey, we got a big call on the other side of the county. You guys get to go. So yeah, uh, yeah, it was. It, it was a, it was really fun. Yeah. I mean, it was a it was a, a real experience. Any mm-hmm. big incidents from back in that time frame that uh, uh, strike you remember? Well, the ones that that Cobb Lumber Company, um, which was a big lumber company up off of Richmond, uh, Richmond Paperworks. Um, uh, there's, there's two or three probably bigger fires than that we had there. I know we had a we had a fire up off of uh, Broad Street. Uh, I don't know if it was a, a I think it was a restaurant fire, but th- there was plenty of fire for everybody. It really was, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a interesting time. Like I say, I learned a lot. Yeah, and that's back when the fire department only did fires. The yeah, EMS was yeah, not we did, we did not run EMS. You know, yeah. we we were just. Running the yeah. fun stuff. Yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, I mentioned uh, earlier this podcast is really about legends and legacies and history and the culture, and you're very well connected with um, one legacy in Henrico now, and that's the Hazardous Incident Team that's that's been around forever, yeah. as yeah. far as I'm concerned. When I joined Lakeside in 79, uh, it was – it was pretty much known that Henrico had kind of the premier hazardous materials response entity in, in the area. And, yeah. and uh, you guys were kind of the experts. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in hazardous materials or how that team got established or how that unit got spun up. Well, from the, from the beginning, I was, uh, I was probably about 18 years old cause I was on a call and it was on uh, 64 at very near the scales, uh, uh tanker overturn it came in as a gasoline tanker and we spent the night we set up you know like we were going to protect their i I guess we were going to put out this fire but we had an old chemical truck and pulled some you know hand lines and some foam equipment and we stood by there that at night when the sun came up we realized it was an lp gas tanker Mm. and and that that's really what pushed me into studying and and going to school and um, uh, I went. I, I took a couple of classes on my own. I read some books. I went up to Montgomery, Maryland, and uh, attended a, a class at Warren Isman. He was a premier uh, hazmat guy in the in the country, actually in the world. I mean, he he was consulting all over the world, and he had written a really good book. So I um, I, I went to his classes, and uh, and while I was sitting up there. Uh, you know, trying to think about what, how we were going to put this thing together, um, we got some really good ideas from the way they were doing it. And then, you know, as we went regional, I set up there with uh, Larry Logan from Roanoke County and uh, Danny Hall, and um, we we decided that, you know, we were going to try to do something, put a team together, a regional team. And uh, And eventually that's what we did, you know. You say regional team in Rico or Roanoke being one of the other teams was it? Yeah, it was Roanoke County, uh, Roanoke City, uh, actually Augusta County. Ronnie Garber had a small team. Um, Virginia Beach had a team, 
Portsmouth had a team, Norfolk had a team, and um, Fairfax had a team. Not all of them became regional teams, though. Only the ones that were regional teams were Norfolk, I mean, uh, excuse me, not Norfolk, um, um, Roanoke County, Roanoke City, um, Henrico County, and um, Portsmouth, and Virginia Beach. And you say regional teams. Um, who was coordinating that back then? Was it just kind of a gentleman's agreement between the departments? Well, the it was coordinated by the Department of Emergency Services. Um, Corey Gabrielson was the first uh, hazmat officer in the, in the state. And, and we, didn't, we weren't really organized you know, under him. We, we, we responded with him. It really became organized probably more so when um, um, Corey Gabrielson uh, came on board. And, and you know, they, it, was a, it was a joint effort. I mean, a lot of their uh, staff got involved. Uh, Steve Grainer uh, used to help us with the training and the conferences. And so it was, um, it was a lot of people that put it together. It wasn't just, it wasn't just me. Or it wasn't just Henrico. It was a lot of work. What about what time frame was this? Um, obviously, uh, in, in the seventies, sometime or was it? Wow, let's see. It's, uh, uh, we we put, actually put the hit team get together. I wrote the letters in in May of eighty one. May of eighty one. Yeah, and I wrote the letter to Chief Fisher, and I uh, told him what we wanted to do, and um, and and he agreed. You know, he he, and uh, so I set up a training class. Well, I picked eleven people out of out of the fire service. Uh, all lieutenants, no particular reason why. I just, you know, I wanted to pick lieutenants. I didn't want to put captains on it because they were they were there weren't many captains around, and um, and I didn't want to put firefighters on it because I hated to put that burden on a firefighter. So we picked eleven lieutenants, and um, that that was the beginning of the hit team. What what went into your thought process behind selecting those lieutenants? Was it tenure in the department? Was it something that they had in their training or their their reputation with the department? No, they. I, I had worked with most of them, and they were they were all smart guys. I mean, you know, I figured they would be able to learn without having a problem. Not that anybody else couldn't have learned it. I just I didn't want the captains were really short. You know, there weren't a lot of captains, and and they weren't. You couldn't put a team together with them. Well, I, f I figured if I could get 11 people, or and many times we only had half of that, you know, get six people show up. Um, so that's what we did. And obviously with a 11, an 11-person 11 team that's all lieutenants, they're not all at that station at the same time. No. How, did they, how did you go about mustering that crew or enough people <laughs> together to, to be well, able to work Well, in the beginning, we, we, we did phone calls, you know, and, and the paging system, not the, actually the radio system. Then we went to pagers, and everybody got a pager. And eventually, most everybody got a cell phone. But in the beginning, there was no cell phone, yeah. so, you know. Yeah, can you, uh, I got a note in here a little bit later on about uh, this other incident that we're going to talk about, uh, about the absence of cell phones and the, how they wind up communicating from that scene. So uh, keep yeah. that in mind for the listeners as we go through that. Okay. Um, what would you say is kind of one of the biggest changes you saw from that that first 11 lieutenants that came on as a team and how you did business and ran operations back then to how things may be working as you left the department and as you left the team? Just about everything we did was, was smaller scale, um, less equipment, very, very little monitoring equipment. 
you know, we had um, um, a Draeger tube system, and but everything that we did, the instant command system, was was just a small uh, five man. We put five people together to to make up the instant command system. That was taken from California from the wildland fires. Mm-hmm. And then it became the national, you know, we just had small jobs. We, you know, you had an operations guy, a safety guy, um, somebody in finance, and maybe somebody in, um, uh, to, to, as a liaison to work with, you know, the department heads and, and different people, depending on if you want to recall or you were working in Henrico. And um, now it's a national incident command system, I think they call it, yeah. or, or yeah. whatever the new term is. That's it. Uh, but I went on a call with Henry. I've never seen so much equipment in my life. <laughs> um, it's a lot of people that, that monitor all of the different things that go on at a fire scene. We, we didn't do any of that. You mm-hmm. know, we were we were pretty small potatoes. And what station was the uh, original hazmat team based out of? Um, the, the the original hazmat team you know, was was based well. The equipment was based at eleven. Okay. Um, and and uh, the guys were you know scattered around in the stations, so the the very first truck we had, well actually the very first truck we had was a little Chevy van that Captain Rothwaller had in training, and uh, we used that for just a, a few months, and we went and got the Blue Ridge Regional Library mobile bookmobile. I remember know. that's a that's the vehicle I remember first. Yeah, right? yeah, it was. Um, it was. Um, it drove like a sheet of plywood. I think Duck brought uh, <laughs> oh. Jerry Rollison brought it back and said it drove like a sheet of plywood, and um, we got it back and uh, cleaned it up. You know, it, it it really was in bad shape, and we didn't do much with it until we got it fixed up and painted, and uh, put some. We put cabinets in it and um, a desk and a, a bench and and then places to store the equipment. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's go back to a little bit about your career. You started the hazmat team, uh, 81, I think you said. Uh-huh, 81. Um, obviously, you were a lieutenant at that time. Mm-hmm. I was captain. You were captain, by mm-hmm. the way. Okay. Captain in training. All right, so you were in training actually running the team from, from the training uh-huh, Yeah. Right. Yeah. What? Where did you go from there, from captain in training to – did you go back to, to the field or – I did. I, I made battalion chief in um, 85, and I went to number 12 – as a Western District A shift battalion chief, so working out of twelve, working the West, and from there, uh, you got promoted again, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you? Uh, I, well, I I got promoted a couple times. I I went to um, I went to the fire marshal's office one time. I did a, a we did an experimental um, district chief program where Pete Sprouse and I were in at number one, and he took the East End, I took the West End. Um, I went in the office and worked uh, emergency services uh, for a little while. That it was taken over by, back then. You could do it in uniform. Now it's a civilian position. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I served in a variety of roles. And ultimately, you retired out at assistant chief, uh, deputy deputy fire chief. Deputy yeah. fire chief. So yeah. What were you responsible for when you when you left? What was your well, operations mostly, but a little budget. Um, I worked with you know most of the companies. I I uh, oversaw the Marine Patrol, the um, the budgets for. The, I actually rode in the Marine Patrol because I like like being on a boat. But you're the boss. You could ride yeah. whatever piece you wanted. Yeah, right? it was a good it was a good good ride. But uh, I, m- mostly personnel work and uh, overseeing budgets. Um, 
is is what I did at the end at the end of my career, the last six years of my career. Yeah. yeah so if I, if I remember the uh, the first boat that we acquired uh, was through your actions. Yeah, the first really big boat. We had a couple of small boats, you know, that that were a little, like a little aluminum skiffs. But we got a boat from um, actually through the state surplus. It was a Coast Guard um, a UTB forty one, which is a their their smaller um, utility boat. It's a forty one. It was a forty foot forty one foot boat. Is that the it? 41 is yeah, yeah. It, it was um, um, forty one. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Three seventy six was the number on it, and uh, we got that and. Um, Moved it from the surplus then on Darbytown Road to the marina at Kingsland. And uh, that's where we did most of the work on it. Yeah, Even a- Candy came down and worked on it. <laughs> yeah. So we had um, Bill Stratton and David Bossell and myself and two or three other people. Um, people came down to help us. You know, we had to replace that... Um, big bumper around it which was huge and it's like fighting an anaconda and uh i think kenny thompson came down and lettered the the boat once it was painted so it was a, it was uh it was kind of a fun time <coughs> yeah that's, that's what's amazing as you look at um teams and equipment that we have today such as the hit team and and the uh water rescue and boats that we have that are ordered new and specific for those um, type of uh, tasks. Um, but all of those um, those two areas started by equipment that we either acquired from surplus or purchased from another agency and was, uh, in this case, in yeah. the hazmat was a bookmobile and we converted yeah. it to a hazardous materials uh, first out response. First out response in it. And yeah. uh, so, but it goes to show that, you know, just a little initiative and we'll go a long ways, and you never know what you're going to start today, and it's still going to be around 20, 30 yeah. years. We, we, all of our equipment was, you know, we, we kind of just put some tools together in the beginning because you know, we didn't have a lot. And uh, in uh, AT&T, across number six, they, they donated a lot of equipment mm-hmm. to us. And, um, you know, we were very thankful for that. That You know, they did the Drager tubes and the, the uh, GC, little portable GC mask back and those things that um, that we used. But we didn't have a lot. I mean, it's surprisingly, our, our suits were um, surplus. The be- beginning suits were surplus suits. And then we ended up getting some pretty nice um, MSA suits and Viton, you know, Viton and Butyl. And, uh, but in the beginning, they were, they were really, they were really in bad shape. <laughs> Not bad shape, but they were. I just want to hit that again. A hazmat suit, a uh-huh. chemical suit that yeah. is surplused yeah. to go to the fire department as a response agent. Yeah, we picked them up at the state. <laughs> my, my, how things have changed. <laughs> and they weren't disposable. They you weren't. But no. you ran a call and. No, you washed them and you washed them back and in service. Oh, yeah. Yep. yeah. Yeah. And, the, and I remember the testing that would be done on those suits, all inflated, laying oh, around yeah, the station. Blow them up and yep. Put soapy water on them. Yeah, that's true. It was, uh, yeah, and the public walk in and see somebody, what they thought was somebody laying around, and yeah, and they weren't laying around. It was just a suit or being hung upside down, and they think, uh oh, what did that guy do? There's <laughs> the practical joke <laughs> yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, deconning those things, and you know, we did. It was such a small operation. So decon was was uh, little swimming pools that you. Yeah, little blow up pools. Little blow up pools, and yeah. yeah. 
that kind of takes us to um, kind of the one incident I want to dive into a little bit deeper. Um, I think this was kind of a, um, a watershed incident for maybe for Henrico. I remember it being for me because I was I was still new to the EMS side. I hadn't been in I hadn't gotten to the fire department when this happened, but uh, I certainly remember it happening. And I'm gonna kind of read a couple of passages from an article um, that was written in 1983 uh, about an incident that happened uh, the year before. And uh, I'll quote from that, quoting, Accurate information was a problem from the first telephone call reporting the, quote, gas poisoning at Hanover Industrial Air Park. After getting the address, the dispatcher asked what business it was. The caller erroneously called it chemical analysis instead of the correct name of environmental laboratories. That meant that no file card for the chemical for chemical analysis could be found in the communication center to identify owners or whom to call in an emergency. The fire department was not dispatched on this first call at 6.08 p.m., only the ambulance rescue squad. When the fire department was dispatched four minutes later, an order went out to responding fire personnel that no one should enter the area of the incident without wearing complete protective clothing and positive pressure breathing apparatus. Unfortunately, the separate ambulance rescue squads were not equipped with SCBA. Another quote, ah, this stuff is getting to all of us. Take over, radioed the rescue squad. Every victim at the scene had been found unconscious or incoherent from an unknown gas poisoning. The rescuers went in to get them and were transporting them to the hospital. Then, one by one, the rescuers became victims. Quoting again, it's a good idea to keep a little ways away because everybody seems to be normal and all of a sudden, you know, it hits them, end quote, said another rescuer over the radio. The fire units and I received, re- arrived at 624. We found the rescue squad had already entered the building and was preparing to transport four victims to the hospital. Three were suffering from both cardiac and respiratory problems, unable to tell us anything about what had occurred. The fourth person, while conscious, could not provide any information either. A command post was set up just north of the building, and a team of firefighters led by District Chief Pete Taylor entered the building to check for other victims and to search for more information. The telephone was found off the hook in the front office, and a notebook with apparent chemical formulas was found. Moving to a storage room and work area, the team found gloves and breathing apparatus laying around the area. Various tools were found on the floor. In front of an overhead door, tanks with with air and nitrogen were found. The overhead door was raised about five feet outside. A strange device was found, later identified as a destruction ram, used to destroy and neutralize small cylinders of chemicals. A hose ran from the ram to a 55-gallon drum in the parking lot about 40 feet away. Inside the drum was a caustic solution or neutralizing bath. Eventually, a, a row of small cylinders was found on the ground 20 feet away. Only two of the va- cylinders showed any identification, borane. As the victims were being transported to the hospital by the rescue squad, each squad member began to get sick. One member reported, reportedly was in respiratory distress and another reported feeling intoxicated and started speeding at more than 85 miles per hour to the hospital. When a communications link was completed with the two hospitals, the Medical College of Virginia and St. Luke's, we soon learned that even the hospital emergency room staff became sick, presumably after breathing air from the victim's lungs and clothes. For the first time in history, the MCV emergency room was closed and quarantined. 
Ambulances used to transfer, transport victims were also quarantined. And that, that's from an article, like I said, in 1985, written by Chief Mark, Mike Harmon from Hanover. And I want to get Chief Harmon on here one day as well to, to get his mm-hmm. kind of take on this. But uh, the incident occurred on Thursday, the 25th of February, 1982. And the actual incident lasted more than six days, involved state, local, and regional resources, and even some federal agencies. Um, and Tiny, this is, uh, this is one of those big incidents that kind of goes down in history, if you will, yeah. around the region. And I think probably across the, the world, maybe, or even in the U S because of the nature and the scope and where we were at the time. Do you remember that call? Yeah. Oh, very well, I can, I could almost, uh, give you the dates and times. Um, it was, um, it was the first really big call that made national news and, you know, we had, other other fires and you know but that one went across the country you know i actually had a friend of mine in, that i had met at montgomery county in at a school called me from uh up in seattle washington and asked me about it and um that that's what really started um getting the the word out you know where, that we had a hazmat team and that um that we were going to be responding to this call so how did you get that? Did did Hanover make the request directly to Hanover? I think or? Hanover made the request. We had a mutual aid agreement with them, right. and and we responded up uh, just just a, a few of us, a small group, to uh, to the scene. What were kind of the first uh, first things you were worried about when you got there? Um, had, had, I'm assuming by the time you guys got there, all the victims had gone. Yeah, away. yeah, everybody was gone. We were we were really worried about um the type of chemical it was cuz we really didn't know. You know, we we didn't we didn't know what pentaborine was, but we didn't I mean, we didn't have any idea what any of the chemicals were. And uh we were worried about the the firefighters that were left there whether they were going to get, you know, contaminated or that what we would do to protect ourselves and protect them. And then and then we did a little recon into the building. Um, it was, uh, Chuck Ramsey and myself wearing paper Tyvek suits on a pen of boring call, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, we went in and we looked around and of course everybody was gone, but they, we, we went back into where the garage was and this, this device was setting. It looked almost like something from out of space. It was a, a upright cylinder, a big, big, heavy duty, um, round pipe that with a uh, gauges on it and a and a hose that went in the bottom and a hose that went in the top and that's where they they where they said the chemical was pumped into this bath and um so you know we went we went outside and we found this guy's truck and the front the seat was open and there was a first aid kit had been pulled apart and the stuff that you put in your eye was squeezed out and um and we found his notes and his notes started off in the first part of the week in perfect handwriting and we were we were looking at his notes and as the week went on they got sloppier and sloppier and sloppier so he was being exposed to what he, he some was, of these products yeah were, oh wow yeah and of course we didn't know what the products were so we were trying to find out where they came from and they they actually came from um uh, a company had bought um some land from Philip Morris up off of uh, that used to be what used to be Texaco Research, and they made rocket fuel, or tested rocket fuel back in the 40s, I guess early 50s, late 40s, 
And uh, and Philip Morris had had this land surveyed, and they dug these cylinders up, and that's when they called the guy in from uh, Elizabeth City, uh, New Jersey, and he he his company was the company that was uh, trying to neutralize it. And just uh, it, you you said that when you first got there, you really didn't know what it was. And I, I digging through some historical documents, I found some of the some of the kind of timeline on it. And it really took more than 24 hours to truly identify what the product was. It did. And, and I, the results from a, uh, the National Bureau of Standards Labs in Washington, and I think some of it went to the state lab as well, but the they, report they, I saw from, yeah, from D.C. Yeah. said that um, identified the product as diborane, hexaborane, and pentaborane. And some of the documentation I found, this is a quote from the, the document that says, pentaborine is a super toxic chemical that is 2,000 times more deadly than cyanide. Mm-hmm. So n- not the best stuff in the world to be playing with. No, no, not with the equipment we had. Yeah. And I think it was fair to say that even the, the workers at that facility there did not know what they were dealing with either no they didn't I, I'm not even sure at the at the point that they were they were actually neutralizing that they had a clue what it was mm-hmm. um, I don't think anybody had done any testing until we sent it to the state lab and the, the lab in Washington yeah so w- what was that process like I know that the I think that there was some state police aviation assets that got brought into play too. yeah yeah uh, Captain Rothwaller buddy Rothwaller went in and took a a sample from uh, the the lab had actually sent out some evacuated cylinders. They were metal, and you hooked them up, and you you sucked the the contents into the cylinder. And uh, he took that sample, and they flew the the state police helicopter to Washington, and uh, we went down to the, they sent them down to the lab, and they closed the lab up. You know, they were afraid that they didn't know because they didn't know what it was. Yeah, they they until they found out what it was. Right, because back in Richmond, we had several people in the hospital. At least one death at this point. Mm-hmm. I, I think the fatality was a day or so later. Later, maybe. yeah. And yeah. Uh, and the the guy was uh, the guy that was left was a uh, one that was a vegetable. You know that. Right. He just it just turned his brain to mush is what they said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he actually passed away several years later. Yeah, in the nursing home. But it was home. because he was you know incapacitated because of the exposure to, yeah. to the gas. Yeah. Right. And the fact that it shut down the hospitals and the ER, it was a pretty significant event at that time. To, <laughs> it uh, sure was. To transport. Yeah, it was know, crazy. Those uh, those victims, and then ultimately the responders were victims. Yeah, yeah. So ultimately, this um, this this stuff, it took, like I said, the, the documentation says it's about six days worth of operations to a, identify what it was. Mm-hmm. Then see, then try to work a plan to see what you're going to do with it. And even um, I think at one point, the, at least the documentation I saw says somebody from the team tried to neutralize it with this process they had set up. Does it? Did that ring a bell? With our team? Yeah, or somebody did. It was somebody came in and tried to neutralize it, and it started having a violent reaction in the. I don't. I don't recall that. Yeah, we'll, we'll jump through that. But what? So what? What did uh, ultimately? What did the team wind up doing with this over these six days? Are you sat on it, or no? You... Ha- um, Hanover County sat on it. We uh, we we weren't really a part of getting rid of it, but um, Chief Birch and um, 
the state hazmat officer arranged to have the um, the um, leftover chemicals and what was what was in the cylinders put in the back of a dump truck that had a container in the center of it with sand around it, and they uh, arranged to take it to AP Hill. And at AP Hill is where they um, had planned to destroy it, but they had to get permission from the uh, um, Department of Defense. So, so somebody in DC had yeah, to, DOD. Had to, DOD. I, had I, to, DOD. Yeah. I, I remember that. And I, I did see that. Um, I'll read another quote that um, that Chief Harmon wrote in his stuff. It says, uh, "On Tuesday, the governor's office got involved, and finally, in the early morning hours of Wednesday, March third, remember this happened on Thursday, mm-hmm. the week before." The gas cylinders were taken to AP Hill and detonated. Right. And they spent That's Wednesday correct. Wednesday and Thursday decontaminating debris from the detonation. That's correct. So, yeah. Again, it's uh, quite the incident. It, it, it's etched in my mind because I was a rescue squad member at the time, you know, not in the fire service yet, and it was rescue squad members that got, in, got into this um, and were exposed. Yeah, and sure it was. Were affected. So what, what were the big... Um, Big changes that came out of either for the Henrico Hazmat team or regionally, do you think, that came out of this incident? Um, well, probably getting better detection equipment and better better equipment, better suits, um, and, um, and, and, and trying to set up classes that had more chemical um, um, Classes, you know, more uh, more, more exposure to chem. Yeah, chemistry. Uh, we set up some chemistry classes. We um, taught. Um, we actually taught. Uh, we put together a class that uh, um, OSHA um, adopted. Um, you know, and they uh, that became Hazwopper eventually, and then uh, uh, the the different levels of hazmat response. So that really that incident really drove a lot of things that we saw in the later into the eighties and even yeah. beyond. It really did. I mean, it really set set up, and people still talk about it today. There yep. was a there was an article not too long ago um, in the paper that somebody recalling um, the incident. You know, yeah, it wasn't necessarily just what was developed for the hazmat in the fire department but it was for all first responders so it was that really the beginning yeah. of that awareness yeah, it was the beginning of the awareness yeah. the has whopper the heck i went to i went to the oil spill down in in florida and it was teaching a class you know just teaching a, the, the has whopper class really and i they they showed a video i was showing videos you know and i had not had a chance to see them and uh i put them in the the disc in the machine and opened it up and there's in Reichel's hazmat team on the on, on this all, incident, all these years later, they're still showing. Uh, OSHA is still showing that Henrico. That we, it was a train. It was a decon class at at the old Glen Allen Elementary School, <laughs> <laughs> using the blow up pools and uh-huh. yeah, with uh-huh. the bookmobile. Yeah, yeah always showed everything. You know, it had it all. And so, they they did us. They they filmed us, and then went to Virginia Beach and filmed them doing an incident command. You know, set up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they still it's still in the it's still in the OSHA training. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about you mentioned the kind of the chemicals um, back in 1982 from a reference material standpoint. Today, I mean, with internet, Google, you know, all the databases that hazmat teams have available to them to look up 
what may be pentaborine or how to respond yeah. to it or the types of materials that might react with it. What were you guys using at the time for reference and research? Well, there was no computer, so we didn't have anything back then. Uh, we had gotten some books from AT&T, um, a, a big Merck chemical book, and um, a, a few other books. And um, uh, we used mostly, mo that's mostly what we used, that we got MS, the um, MSDS sheets that we could get. And, uh, and then the state helped us, um, the Water Control Board, those, those folks had some, some pretty good knowledge and some pretty good books. And they helped us out a lot with things like Hazardous Inc. You know, the they, it was a water control board, so they didn't get involved with a lot of big chemicals. But all of, all of that came kind of was was part of how we we um, we referenced our chemicals. We we did call Dupont a couple of times, you know, and got information from them, uh, and they they gladly respond to a chemical that they have, and uh, and they're of course the top of the line team. But mostly it was it was just books, books in MSDS sheets. Eventually, the you know the DOT book came out, and we worked with motor carrier safety, the guys, the troopers, right. and uh, you know they got they had a lot of information on chemicals. But um, that's where most of it came from. It's it's interesting you mentioned that there were several companies in the region, and you mentioned AT and T and Dupont mm -hmm. that um, offered their resources to help out. Uh, not only on our training, but also on our incidents when we responded. And we'd actually make um, or had personal contacts. And I can remember calling people after hours that worked for AT&T. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes yeah. they would come oh, to the yeah. scene or, or either go into work and help do some research for yeah. us. So yeah. it you know it really underscores the uh, the relationships that were developed back then and, and how they uh, offered their services. And, and those yeah, companies. they were great to work with. They, they, yeah. they were just tickled to death to help us. But if it, you know, it was all going back, it, it was all paper based. It was hardcover or soft mm -hmm. cover books. Yeah. If, if it wasn't, yeah. if it wasn't in the book, you couldn't find that in the book. How did you, how did you work with it then? Um, <laughs> we kept, we kept digging until we, until you found we either got an MSDS sheet or we found it in a, in, in a book somewhere. We had a, a stack of books. I mean, you know, it was a, more than just the, the Merck book and the, I mean, we had all kinds of books that, that you look through. And it was a time consuming. I mean, the guys that did the research would would sit at the desk and I would I would stand outside or sit on the sofa and they they worked and worked and worked to get, you know, to to finally find out what we had or what we were gonna do with it. Wow. Interesting. I you know, just just to point out to the to the guys and gals that may be out there today with a satellite link to the internet and Type in the name and then find out all they needed to know. We had we had crews with books digging through them, trying yeah. to find out stuff. Yeah, yeah. It really did. In the equipment today, where they can take an unknown substance, and um, and pretty much have a, a do an analysis, ninety nine percent you know certainty of yeah. what, they what got the some chemical is. Now, and, boy. Yeah, it's just amazing what technology has has brought to the table. Yeah. Just to wrap that uh, that incident up, uh, the kind of the summary stuff I've got in here, it says 18 people were hospitalized, one died within a week, and one died several years later in a long-term care facility. Um, so that's kind of the, the casualty list, if you will. And um, I'll just bring up this note that uh, Chief Harmon put in his article um, to kind of show the differences of today versus then. Uh, it says, uh, from lessons learned, it's, quote, Telephones should have been installed 
close to the command post for this extended operation rather than using the phones inside the affected building. Yeah. How many people at the scene today, Henry, would have a cell phone in their pocket oh, yeah. and ready to make phone calls or you know, everybody can make a phone call as opposed to hijacking a business's hard yeah. line from their office. So. That's for sure. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, you know, one of the, uh, one of the comments I've received uh, about the podcast already is um, the, the folks really like hearing kind of pearls of wisdom from the, the senior members who have who either is still in the department or who may have retired like yourself. And I, I kind of pose this question um, to folks is if you had five minutes in front of today's, the next graduating recruit class of firefighters, not necessarily about hazmat, the fire service, uh, what what pearl of wisdom would you share with them to say, here's maybe a key to the, to success in their career going forward? I've done it before. T- tell them, um, I, tell, I tell them, take every job that you can take. Take hazmat, take, tra- I mean, take uh, training, take um, fire prevention, go in emergency services, go in fire, to be a fire inspector, go in and take every job that you can take because when the staff sets down to look at the firefighters that are going to be promoted, they're going to want somebody that's got as much information as they possibly can have. That's a part of it. It's not everything. But, but I've told people that for a long time. Just take every job. Every job that nobody wants, take it. You know, Take these jobs and, and build your career around those jobs. Don't wait until you know, you're 55 years old and then you want to, you know, get promoted or be a fire inspector, take, take them as, as much as you can take every job you can take. That That's not a, not an uncommon theme I'm hearing so far. So uh, yeah. hopefully just drive that aspect home. Uh, what year did you retire? Uh, I, I retired May the 1st, 2003. So 33 years. Uh-huh. Is that about it? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So a, a long and very distinguished career, uh, tiny. Thanks. Uh, I got to know you in the fire department and around the fire department over the years when you were still there. And I appreciate all the lessons learned both then and today. And, um, uh, kind of wrap this up, just reminding everybody that, uh, if you're listening to this and you got some topic that you want to hear, let, let me know. Uh, you can get to us through uh, email at firehouse logbook at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at FD logbook. Uh, I've got an Instagram page now at, uh, FD logbook podcast. And uh, we're going to be on Facebook as well. So trying to reach out through all the social media to let folks know we're out there. And uh, the official webpage of the, the podcast itself is www.thefirehouselogbook.captivate.fm. So uh, be sure to reach out to us through those social media platforms, the, we- the website or the email. And um, we look forward to hearing what you think about this. And to wrap it up, uh, Deputy Chief... R.C. Tiny Dawson from Henrico, thank for your service to the citizens of the county. My pleasure. And uh, the Commonwealth as well. And uh, any last closing comments? Yeah, best job in the world. Another common theme. Chief Dawson, thanks for being with us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you, R.C. Thank you.